Hello and welcome back to Complexity Unpacked with Professor G. This is our eighth episode in the Ethics Unpacked series. And today we're going to look at consequentialist theory, more specifically utilitarianism. So if we're going back to our ABC model, the primary focus of this theory is on the C, right? That is the consequence of the action in question. So consequence does not mean punishment in this application. It means outcome. Consequentialist theories focus on the outcomes of your actions, and the most enduring of these theories is called utilitarianism, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Utilitarianism argues that one should focus on increasing the happiness and reducing the suffering in the world. They make claims about what makes an outcome good. However, a common misconception is understanding what actually constitutes the most good and it often fails to acknowledge the importance of impartiality in this theory. This is often expressed in the reductive statement, the end justifies the means, which more often than not leads to a misunderstanding of the theory. So consequ consequentialists believe that what motivates um, and causes actions, sorry, consequentialists believe that motives cause actions, but outcomes are produced by actions. The Western ethicist most commonly associated with the theory of utilitarianism is Jeremy Bentham. He referred to the amount of pleasure or happiness and pain or suffering the action produced as the action's utility. This was called the principle of utility. He believed that utility was the highest good a human could aim for. Bentham meant utility for everyone involved though and not just the individual actors in a situation. So this is the root of that common misunderstanding there, right? It's utility for everyone involved, not just the actors. Ethicists called creating the most possible happiness and the least suffering, maximizing utility. This was one of those, um, and this was one of the most important components of Bentham's theory. So. Jeremy Bentham used seven factors to calculate sort of happiness. And they were intensity, how much pain or suffering was produced by the action. Duration, how long will the pain or suffering last. Certainty, how certain are we that the action will produce pleasure or suffering. Proximity, how soon after the action will the outcome be realized. Secondary impact. Will the initial outcome bring more pleasure or more suffering without any other further action taking place? Dynamic impact. How likely is it that the pleasure or suffering will be inverted? Meaning, how likely is it for something to start off being good and then becoming bad down the line? And to what extent? So how wide an effect will this outcome have? What you can tell from his seven factors is was he's, he was trying to get a comprehensive picture of the outcome, not just in the immediate, but in its long run, right? So over a period of time, what would the downstream effects of a choice be? And this comes back to that whole idea that it was about finding the most good for everyone involved. And that means looking past the moment. So remember earlier in the semester, when we discussed Bentham's view on rights 
and uh, we were talking about his uh, him as a legal positivist. So consider how that impacts his theory of utility. And a clear limitation would obviously be that he does not consider individual rights as fundamental. So Bentham has uh, was famously quoted as saying that rights are nonsense on stilts. So that should give you an idea on how he how important he thought the outcome of an action was, because he was discounting the individual in that equation, but looking at the broader impact. So the second Western theorist who had a major impact on utilitarianism was John Stuart Mills. Now he questioned Bentham's way of calculating utility, because he noted that people have different perceptions of pleasure and suffering. And he believed in ordering higher and lower pleasures. But that, that gets a little bit into the weeds. So I'm going to back up again, um, sort of a little bit, and give you a much broader you know, definition here. So utilitarians take everyone affected by the action into account, right? That's each person's happiness and suffering matters equally. And maximizing utility therefore requires impartiality. Right? And they call that the equal consideration of interest principle. Properly quoted, it would require acknowledgement uh, that the statement should read, one is ethically required to attempt to bring about the consequence that would lead to the greatest amount of happiness for everyone affected. Right? They call that the greatest happiness principle. As opposed to the common reductionist statement, greatest happiness for the greatest number, when you reduce that sentence to the greatest happiness for the greatest number, what we remove from it is that last line, which actually changes the whole context for everyone affected. So there are two ways to judge an, you know, um, an outcome. The first they called act consequentialism. So choosing the alternative available that leads to the best outcome in immediate situations the actor is presently in. So there, this requires three steps. Evaluate what the options available are, determine how much utility is produced by each option, and then choose the right option for that situation. This method focuses on the utility values of the specific action that are directly related to the particular situation and directs attention to being aware and considerate to the direct effects of one's actions on others. But it still requires a person to act in a manner that is maximally beneficial to everyone involved as a whole. Right? So the focus here is on the direct, the very specific. In comparison, rule consequentialism puts less emphasis on the direct good that comes out of a specific situation and focuses on the outcome that results in general if people acted according to certain rules. So the rule which over time does maximum utility is strengthened and reinforced. So it requires the following steps, right? So figure out the general rule of conduct in question. And then you have to ask yourself three key questions. What would happen if everyone acted in accordance with the rule in question? Then what would happen if everyone acted in accordance with the opposite of the rule in question? And finally, what have the effects been of following or not following that rule in the past. And then obviously select the best alternative as it maximizes happiness. So how do you understand that? So imagine a situation where a police officer sees somebody they know from the past. And perhaps they feel they know that this is not a good person. 
But on this particular instance, they haven't seen them commit any crime. In fact, they have no evidence that they committed a crime. But based on their prior knowledge, they felt, if I arrest this person and lie that they were committing a crime, I will serve the greater good by putting him in jail, right, or her in jail. Now, what rule consequentialism would ask you to do was to ask yourself, what would happen if everyone acted in accordance to that rule? So if you were simply saying, what's the greatest happiness, perhaps you're thinking that arresting this person and putting him away means he won't commit further crimes, which means he won't have further victims, and so more people will be happy, one, people, one person will suffer, what could go wrong? But a rule consequentialist would say, what is the rule we're trying to apply here? And the rule would be that it's okay for the police officer to lie about seeing him committing an act, of, you know, a criminal act. So if you ask yourself, what would happen if everyone acted in accordance with that rule? That would mean every police officer would lie to arrest somebody they thought was bad. Well, can you imagine what would happen in a society where that occurred all the time? Well, clearly people would lose trust in the police soon. And if they lost trust in the police, the police would lose legitimacy. In fact, they would start to question our social justice system. And what comes out of that? Now, if you were to ask yourself the other question, well, what happens if everyone acted in accordance with the opposite of that rule? So if you'd ask yourself, well, if we don't want every cop lying, what would happen if every cop told the truth? Well, what that would mean was that they would arrest them when they saw them committing a crime and when they had actual evidence. But if they didn't see them committing a crime, they would say so. And you have to then ask yourself, well, what would be preferable? You know, every cop lying or every cop telling the truth. And that's how the rule is established. Now, the last piece there that asked you to consider what has happened in the past. Recall our early chat with uh, Chief Charles Ramsey and his position that policing and law enforcement haven't always been on the right side of history. So what has that done, being on the wrong side of history? What has that done for public trust? What has that done, and how has that contributed to our modern-day context? And if you were to look down the line, if we continue to erode trust, and we continue to act in unethical ways, or if we remained to use his words, on the wrong side of history. What type of outcome would this have downstream? So what you can see here is that selecting the best alternative has nothing to do with the moment, the direct action, and everything to do with what would happen if we followed this rule all the way across. When you put them together, you get a pretty strong theory on how to figure out what is good and what you ought to focus in on. Thank you.